All right, it's so good to welcome all of you today, those of you who are in person and all of you joining us online. Thanks for being a part of our service. And I want to give a special shout out to anybody who may be a guest with us this weekend. It's always, always is a great joy to welcome guests into our services. If you got a Bible with you, let me hear you grab it. Let me hear your pages turning to the Gospel of Luke. That's in the New Testament, the Gospel of Luke. And when you get there, find the 12th chapter. I want to hear your pages turning to Luke chapter 12 as we continue our special November message series called Money Rules, Money Rules. A man named Paul Piff, who is a professor at the University of California, Irvine, studies how money influences humans' relationships with one another. And his conclusion is kind of surprising. As a result of his studies, his conclusion is that money makes us mean. Mean. Isn't that odd? He illustrates that in an experiment involving two people playing a rigged game of Monopoly. He writes, we randomly assigned one of the players to be a rich player in a rigged game of Monopoly. They got two times as much money. For example, when they passed go, they, got, they collected twice the salary. As the game unfolded, he says, we saw very dif dramatic differences emerge. The rich players started to move around the board louder, literally smacking the board with their piece. And we were more likely to see signs of dominance and displays of power from the rich player. The rich players actually started to become ruder toward the other person, less and less sensitive and more and more demonstrative of their material success. Quotes from the rich players include, I have money for everything. You're going to lose all your money soon, or I'm going to have so much money, I'm going to buy the whole board, and I'm pretty much untouchable at this point. Pippus conducted similar experiments with real-life wealthy individuals and discovered identical results. His experiments have tested wealthy individuals' willingness to stop for pedestrians at crosswalks, cheat in a game, or share a monetary gift with strangers. And he writes, in every experiment, higher incomes were correlated with mean behavior. And he writes, we've been finding that as a person's level of wealth increases, their feelings of compassion and empathy go down and their feelings of entitlement and self-interest increase. Isn't that interesting? I got to tell you, when I read that, I had two thoughts immediately. The first thought I had was I've known a lot of wealthy people who are extremely humble and generous. I'm sure you could say the same thing. But one caveat, they are also people who have surrendered their hearts in complete faith and trust to Jesus, who has, as a result, changed their lives completely from the inside out. Now, I'm not saying that someone who is not a follower of Christ can't be humble or generous. I'm just saying that when Jesus changes your life, when he really genuinely changes your life, he changes every part of your life, including your view of money. My second thought was that reminds me of a very powerful and a very sobering story Jesus tells in Luke chapter 12. And so if you got your Bible open there and you're able, go ahead and stand with me this morning for the reading of the scripture. This is uh, in our Bibles called the parable of the rich fool. Starts in verse 13 of Luke chapter 12 and it goes through verse 21. Follow along as I read. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. 
This very night your life will be demanded from you, then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? And then here's Jesus' final word of commentary on the story. This is how it will be with anyone who stores up, in the original language of the New Testament, that would read like this, with anyone who treasures things for himself, but is not rich toward God. All right, there it is. You can be seated. We always ask that God would bless the reading and the hearing of his word. Clearly, this man in Jesus' story, this parable, uh, fits the story that I shared with you as we began our time. Uh, That college professor said, what we've been finding is that as a person's level of wealth increases, their feelings of compassion and empathy go down, and their feelings of entitlement and self-interest increase. And that's exactly what you see in Jesus' story from so long ago. Maybe that becomes even more clear when you take the time to notice what you don't see in Jesus' story with this wealthy man. You don't see any acknowledgement toward God in the sense that he was thankful that God provided this abundant crop. You don't see even the slightest desire or concern about using his abundance to benefit anyone other than himself. Instead, all you see is a consistent reference to himself all throughout the story. What shall I do? This is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. There I will store all my grain and my goods. It's all I, 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 I. And right from the beginning, what we see in this story that Jesus tells us is the danger of greed. The danger of greed. And I say that because of how the story begins. Remember somebody asked Jesus one day while he was teaching, I'm, he was just, I'm imagining a, an environment where he's doing some teaching and someone, there's a little pause and someone says, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus said, man, that's not my job, basically. Well, why would I do that? Then Jesus goes on and says, this is Luke chapter 12, verses 15 through the first part of verse 16, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of what? Say it with me, greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And so this is a parable, friends, primarily that speaks about the problem or the danger of greed. Let's define greed for just a moment. If you looked in a dictionary, you would find something like this. Greed is a selfish and excessive desire for more of something than is needed. And we probably aren't surprised by that. That's probably similar to what we would come up with as a definition for greed. What about the biblical definition of greed? In the original language of the New Testament, the word greed that we encounter in, uh, in uh, Luke chapter 12 here is the Greek word pleonexia. And Greek scholar and commentator William Barclay defines pleonexia like this, an accursed, I think that's interesting, an accursed love of having more. More of what? More of anything. And so here's the thing about greed, I'll say it again, greed is dangerous. It can be dangerous when it gets a hold of our lives. And if you look closely at the story Jesus tells there in Luke chapter 12 about this rich farmer, this rich fool, he really tells us three reasons why greed is so dangerous. Real quickly, he says, first of all, it's dangerous because greed lies to us and tells us that what matters most in life is how much stuff we have. Then second, he tells us greed is dangerous because it blinds us to what's really important in life. Did you notice this one thing about Jesus' parable? He never at one point in the parable said anything even remotely connected to the fact that, it, that he thinks that it's, it's wrong to have wealth. Nothing, nothing negative said about being wealthy in the story. What he criticizes ultimately this farmer for this rich man for having is not wealth, 
but for having a concern for no one else but himself. He, 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 he indicts him on his selfishness and his inability uh, to be interested in helping anyone other than himself. And so greed, here's another danger of greed. It blinds us to what's really important in life. And then the third danger of greed is that it can destroy you. So this guy gets all this, you know, he's already a wealthy man, right? But then he has this bumper crop one year and he says, what am I gonna do? Because my barns aren't big enough to store it all. Oh, I know what I'll do. I'll tear down my small barns and I'll build big barns and I'll store up all my wealth because his, his crop is, was his wealth. I'll store up all my wealth and I'll just take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But what happened to him next? God took his life from him. And once God took his life from him, who... There was no way he was going to enjoy the wealth that he amassed. Who was, going to, who was going to benefit from all the wealth that he amassed? But you know what? I think you can make the case of, in saying that that wasn't, you know, the fact that God took his, this is going to sound silly, but I think you can make the case of saying that God taking his life from him wasn't the worst thing that happened to him. The worst thing that happened to him, because remember, this is a parable. It's a parable. It's a story. When I was a little boy in church, I learned that a parable was an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. The worst thing that happened to him is God called him a fool. Because let me tell you, folks, just in case there's any doubt in your mind, if you made a list of things I don't want God to call me, <laughs> then right at the top of the list, you should write down the word fool. Because the Bible teaches us that a fool is someone who lives with absolutely no regard for God. And I can't, in my mind, think of a more foolish thing that anyone could ever do. And so this story tells us about the danger of greed. And so that's, that, that raises the question, what do we do, what do you do, what do I do, what do we do in our lives to avoid the danger of greed? I think there are several ways you can answer that question. I'm just gonna mention three real quick, and this is not our outline or anything. We're still in the introduction. <laughs> the first way we avoid greed in our lives is we recognize our vulnerability. And what do I mean by that? I mean all of us all of us are vulnerable to greed. None of us are immune to greed. You know, we can, you can preach or get up and start talking about greed and you can think, oh, I can just check out right now because I got no, nothing, I got no greed in my life. But greed doesn't just come in the form of money. It can come in a lot of different ways and none of us are immune from greed. The second thing we can do is we can recognize uh, basically what I just said, that it takes many different forms. Jesus said, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. And then the third thing we can do is we can have this conviction in our lives that no matter, no matter what the course of our life might be, no matter how much or how little we might have of the things of the world in our lives, we're gonna make sure that we manage what we have with a plan, with a plan. This farmer was already wealthy, remember? Jesus said, a certain rich man, and then he had this bumper crop, and the problem for him, you would think as a man who was already wealthy that he would have had a better plan for how he's gonna manage what he had other than, oh my gosh, what am I gonna do? I'm just gonna tear it down my little barns and build bigger barns so I can store it up all for myself. But he, that was his plan. And clearly that plan was not okay with God because God called him a fool and took his life from him that very night. So what we need to do, if we really want to avoid the danger of greed, is we make sure, and we really want to honor God, is we make sure that when it comes to the things of the world, however much we have, whether it's a little or a lot, we have this conviction in our hearts to manage what we have with a plan, with a plan.
So I'm gonna tell you, before we go any further, that I've talked to you about this before. I mean, I've been here for a long time. We've talked about money every November for a long time. And I've talked to you a lot about managing whatever you have uh, with a plan. I, I, I read this story uh, this week about a mom who was trying to teach her two kids the story of Jesus and Easter. When she reached the part about Pilate and what he did with Jesus, her six-year-old son, his name was Noah, got mad and asked, Mom, do you think Pilate did the right thing? And his mom said, no, God used the death of Jesus on the cross to benefit all of us, but Pilate should have stood up for, Noah, uh, for Jesus. And Noah said, I agree. And he said, I would have grabbed Jesus and run with him to the plane, jumped in and taken off. His eight-year-old brother Ryan was listening. He said, no, there weren't any planes back in Bible days. And, mom, and, and Noah said, but mom said he was a pilot. And then he said, duh, were you listening? I know that's a really silly story, but here's the, here's, here's the deal. I've talked to you a lot about managing whatever amount of money God has entrusted to us, whether it's a little or a lot before with a plan. Have you been listening? I mean, honestly, what better question could ever be asked about the Bible and spiritual wisdom other than, are you listening? How many times do you think God wants to say to you and me, weren't you listening? Aren't you listening? As we go through life in all different aspects of life, weren't you listening when it comes to the way you're supposed to talk, the way you're supposed to treat each other, the way uh, you're supposed to deal with anger and other emotions and on and on? And he could say, weren't you listening when it came to all that I had to say to you about handling money? I mean, there are over 2,500 verses in the Bible about money, a full more than, or not a full, but more than half of all the parables that Jesus told, just like the parable of the rich fool we read in Luke chapter 12, are set in the context of money and possessions. And I'm sure that God has days when he looks down at us and shakes his head and said, aren't you listening? Because the Bible tells us what to do when it comes to handling money in a way that honors God. And one of the things the Bible tells us that is so very clear, friends, is it says you need to manage it. You need to steward it with a plan. So I'm gonna talk to you about that once again. I'm gonna try to frame it a little bit different uh, this weekend. Uh, and I'm gonna limit myself to three things when it comes to managing whatever amount of money God has entrusted to us with a plan. If you're someone who likes to take notes, write down this first thing. because And this has to be the first thing. This has to be at the top of the list. This is the most important thing. Here's the first part of the plan. It's the understanding that everything belongs to God. That's number one. Everything belongs to God. Look at these words on the screen from Psalm 24 and verse one. In fact, read them with me. Let me hear your voices. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Now, there are so many verses in the Bible that affirm to us that everything belongs to God, but I'm just gonna use that one because I think it says it really simply, really directly, and really clearly. Everything in the world belongs to God. And that's the first management rule that we have to understand when it comes to handling money because it has the greatest impact on how we manage money. There's an old, old story that first appeared in Reader's Digest many, many years ago. I don't think I've ever shared it before, but you've probably heard it about a woman who, during a layover at the airport, went to uh, uh, somewhere and bought a small package of cookies. She sat down in a crowded food court area and she began to read her paper. And uh, a little while later, she heard some wrestling uh, noise on the other side of her paper. So she put her paper down and saw a neatly dressed businessman sitting next to her and he was eating one of her cookies. 
Well, she was pretty surprised by that and didn't really know what to do, didn't want to cause a scene, so she just took one of the cookies and began to eat it, and then she returned to her paper. Then a couple of minutes later, she heard the rustling noise again, and she saw that he had taken another cookie, so she took another cookie. And that continued, <laughs> excuse me, on until there was just one cookie left, and when there was just one cookie left, the man took the cookie, he broke it in two, and he slid half of it to her, and he ate half of it, then he got up and left. Well, you can just imagine how angry she was. She was furious. She was fuming. And she was still fuming when she went to the gate area, and then when she heard her flight being called, she was shocked and embarrassed to open up her handbag to get her boarding pass only to find the package of cookies that she had bought in her purse. And so all the while, not only was she not eating her cookies, she was eating that other man's cookies. And I tell you that story because how we handle the cookies in front of us has a lot to do with who we think those cookies belong to. And the Bible says everything belongs to God. Everything belongs to God. And I know, friends, I know, listen, I've grown up in church my whole life from the time I was a baby in the nursery until today. I know that's one of those things that we hear in church over and over again, and we kind of get desensitized to it and say, yeah, yeah, everything belongs to God. I know, let's get to point number two. But unless we come to a place in our lives where we genuinely believe and understand with conviction that everything belongs to God, we're not gonna get ourselves in a place to manage the money that God has entrusted to us in a way that honors him the way we need to. And so we have to embrace this truth. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter eight, Moses is talking to the Israelites about the provision of God, how God is a, a God who provides, another great biblical truth. And he gets to Deuteronomy chapter eight, or what is our Deuteronomy chapter eight, verses 17 and 18, and he says this, you may say to yourself, my power and strength my, excuse me, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember, Moses says, but remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. Everything belongs to God. Everything. You might say, well, but I'm the one who's worked hard. I'm the one who got the education. I'm the one who's made the sacrifices. Who gave you the ability to do that? Who gives you the breath in your lungs today? At least one time every single day of my life, every single day of my life, at least once, I pray this prayer, God, thank you for another day of life. I say, God... Thank you for another day of life. Because it's not the universe that gave me life. It's not some cosmic unseen force that gave me life. It is the eternal God who is the creator and sustainer of all things that has given all of us another day of life. Everything belongs to God. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. He is the center and the beginning of all things. And believing that, really believing that, frees you up when it comes to handling, managing, stewarding whatever amount of money God has entrusted you, whatever possessions God has entrusted you, whether they're a little or a lot. You know, Sandy and I met in Houston. We got married in Houston. Both of our kids were born in Houston. That's where my first ministries were in Houston. And when Andrew was in kindergarten and Trisha was just about two years old, uh, maybe a little bit older than that, Sandy got a part-time job working at a preschool at a Methodist church that was kind of down and around the corner from our house. 
We only had one car for a long time because we didn't uh, make very much money and um, we didn't, couldn't afford two cars. We had one car and we kept it for a long time, finally got paid off and it was, Sandy loved that car and when she got, we paid that car off then I was able to go out and get a second car which folks was really nothing more than a go-kart with doors, I'm telling you. I've driven some really crummy cars in my life. But once she got up, Andrew went to, got on the bus and went to school. She got up with Tricia and went to preschool, uh, parked the car there in the parking lot of this Methodist church. It's kind of an odd building. It was a, it was a multi-story building, and the, the preschool was on the, the second or the third floor. And anyway, it was one of those, it started to rain, and it turned into one of those, you know, like a hundred-year kind of storms, you know, that comes along. And there was this massive flooding that took place everywhere, everywhere. So she parked that car at the church parking lot in the morning, and by the afternoon, water was all the way up to the dash board all the way. It just seemed like it happened just like that. And all the roads were shut down. You couldn't get anywhere because I remember um, I, uh, I walked from our house to the preschool through water that was about up to here. And uh, in, in Texas, you got fire ants. You ever heard of fire ants? They, you don't want to mess with fire ants. And literally there are leaves and things floating on the water that are carrying fire ants. So this was like hazard pay, hazard pay on that day, but I walked to the preschool to get Sandy and Trish. We left the car there. I put Trish on my shoulders and we walked back to the house. And then I did the same thing. I walked all the way to the elementary school to get Andrew because they couldn't run any buses. They couldn't, the kids were all stuck at school. And I got him and brought him home. It was crazy, but the car was ruined. It was shot. It was gone. You know, water up to the dashboard, you know, it's just done. You're just done. And uh, we had that other little car, but it wasn't going to be sufficient. And I remember thinking about that. And I remember thinking, this is like terrible luck. And then this is about the time I'm starting to really start understanding stewardship principles and stuff like that. And I can remember coming to a place where I literally looked up to heaven. I said, God, you should have taken better care of your car. (laughs) Everything belongs to God, right? God, you should have taken better care of your car because now we're in in a, a bad place. But you know, there was a guy in my church who owned a used car lot and a salvage yard. And you know what he did? He came and he told that car away and he gave me way more money for it than he should have. Not because I asked him to, just because that's what his generous heart decided to do. And then there was another man in my church who was an executive at an oil company. And uh, he, he told me, he said, I heard about what happened to your car. And uh, we got a guy in our office who's being transferred someplace else. And he just turned in his, his uh, company car, which is a lease car. And they just want to sell it for next to nothing. And I bought it. It didn't cost anything more than what I had received from this generous guy in my church for the car as salvage. And so God was, he was taking care of his car, right? But everything belongs to God. And when you understand that, that frees you up when it comes to managing and stewarding whatever God has given to you. Here's the second thing. And this is the heart of the matter right here. That's the, the, that's the most important truth, but this on a practical level is the heart of the matter. If you want to avoid the danger of greed, you understand that everything belongs to God, and you do what this rich man in Jesus' parable did not do, you've got to have a plan. You've got to have a plan for how you manage and handle whatever amount of money that God entrusts you. I told you last weekend that one of my favorite verses in the Bible is Proverbs 13, 16 that says, every prudent man acts out of knowledge. Everyone say knowledge. Knowledge, but a fool exposes his folly. Every prudent man acts out of knowledge, but a fool exposes his folly. And one of the reasons why I love that verse is because it can be applied to just about any area of life. God wants us to go through life 
acting from a position of knowledge. And that is especially true when it comes to managing money. When we kicked off this Money Rules series last weekend, we kicked it off with a message called The Heart Rule because when it comes to handling the money that God's entrusted you, it all begins with your heart. Now we're talking about the management rule. Next week, we're gonna talk about the savings rule. And then the following week, we'll talk about the generosity rule. But when, when we kicked this off last week, I told you my personal story of buying a book called Master Your Money written by a man named Ron Blue back in 1986. I was 28 years old, and I told you that that book, reading that book, changed the trajectory of my financial life. And meeting Ron Blue this last summer and getting to play a round of golf with him was a great thrill for me. But in that book, chapter nine of the book is Avoiding the Most Common Financial Mistake or mistakes rather, that's the title of chapter nine of Master Your Money. And one of the mistakes he lists that people make, that we all make sometimes, is the lack, what he just calls the lack of a budget, which in other words, friends, is the lack of a plan. When it comes to handling money, one of the biggest mistakes we can make is the lack of a budget or a lack, the lack of a plan. And that's really where I began to learn the importance of managing money with a plan. Now, it didn't happen all at once. It was a work in progress, uh, but that's where it all began. Uh, and I'll be real honest with you and tell you this morning, I hate budgets. I hate them. I'm probably not alone in that. I hate budgets. I hate them in the strictest sense because I'm not someone who is immediately drawn to things that are detailed or things that are tedious in nature. So it took a little while for me to figure out what this was gonna look like in our life. But finally, I came to a place where I landed on a plan that worked for me. And I wasn't gonna call it a budget, work for our family. I wasn't gonna call it a budget because I don't like, the word budget just makes you think of being restricted, right? So I say, we're gonna call it a spending plan. Okay, because that sounds better, a spending plan. But not a detailed line by line, where is every single dollar going? It was a spending plan that was based on three fundamental commitments in our life as a family. The first one was uh, a generosity commitment, what we were going to give. The second was a lifestyle commitment, how we were going to live. And the third one was a savings commitment, how much money we were gonna save. Again, I'm not a detailed line-by-line budgeter of money. I have a lot of admiration and respect for people who are, but I don't want to be that detailed, and I don't want to invest that amount of time uh, in keeping track of every dollar. So I follow a plan that's based primarily on percentages, and it's worked for our family. The Bible has so much to say about having a plan, so much to say about planning Let me just give you some examples. Psalm 20 and verse four says about God, may he give you the desires of your heart and make all your plans succeed. Proverbs 15, 22, plans fail for lack of of counsel, but with many advisors they succeed. Proverbs 16, three, commit to the Lord whatever you do and your plans will succeed. Proverbs 16, nine says in in his heart a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. Proverbs 20 and verse four says, a slugger does not plow in season, so at harvest time he looks but finds nothing. And he looks and finds nothing because he didn't have a plan to harvest, to uh, plant seed when it was time to plant seed. I'm sure most of us who are here today, or many of us are familiar with how the book of Proverbs ends. It, it ends in Proverbs chapter 31, beginning in verse 10, all the way down to the end of the chapter with this description of what my Bible calls the wife of noble character. And it says all these things, these incredible things about this woman. And just look at some of the things it says about her beginning. I don't know. This is about in verse 13. She like, she selects wool and flax and works with eager hands. She is like the merchant ships bringing her food from afar. She gets up while it is still dark. She provides food for her family and portions for her servant girls. She considers a field and buys it out of her earnings. She plants a vineyard. She sets about her work vigorously. Her arms are strong for her tasks. She sees that her trading is profitable and her land 
lamp does not go out at night. In her hand, she holds the distaff and grasps the spindle with her fingers. She opens her arms to the poor and extends her hands to the needy. When it snows, she has no fear for her household, for all of them are clothed in scarlet. She makes coverings for her bed. She is clothed in fine linen and purple. Her husband is respected at the city gates where he takes his seat among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and she sells them and supplies the merchants with sashes. And everybody just got to go, oh my gosh, what is this woman doing? She's got a plan. She's taking advantage of her ability to make plans which lead her to be successful in her life and lead her to be this wife of noble character. You get to the New Testament and Jesus is talking about how important it is to count the cost of following him. And he illustrates it like this in Luke chapter 14, verses 28 through 30. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him saying, this fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Listen, you cannot be successful in managing whatever amount of money God has entrusted to you, whether it's a little or a lot, in a way that honors him if you don't have some kind of a plan. And you can have a plan when it comes to managing money that can lead to your financial success. Proverbs 21 and verse five says, the plans of the diligent lead to profit. The plans of the diligent lead to profit as surely as haste leads to poverty. A little later in Proverbs 21 and verse 20, in the house of the wise are stores, stores and abundance of, uh, of choice food and oil, but a foolish man devours all he has. I like the way that's written in the Living Bible. It says a stupid man spends everything that he gets. And that describes a lot of people, honestly, in our world today. We need to manage the money God entrusts to us with a plan. Now, I don't think there's only one right, right plan to use. I don't. But you've got to have a plan. I told you what mine is and what works for me. It's not a line-by-line, zero-dollar budget process. It's a threefold plan based on, gener- uh, based on percentages. A generosity plan, this is how much money we're going to give. We're going to give away. A lifestyle plan, this is the lifestyle we're going to live and a savings plan, this is how much money we're gonna save. And I'll tell you, friends, it's that lifestyle plan that really is crucial in, depend, in, in determining how much you're gonna be able to be, uh, give away, how much, the level of generosity you're gonna be able to live at and the level of money you're gonna save. That lifestyle plan is so important because nothing will kill your ability to do those things like an overly indulgent and consumptive lifestyle, especially when it leads to spending money that you don't have, which is a problem that a lot of people, as crazy as it sounds, which is a problem a lot of people have in the world today, they spend money that they don't have. You can't get any more practical money advice from someone than to listen to somebody say this, spend less than you earn. I read an interesting article uh, the other day online called Seven Expenses High Earners Don't Waste Money On. It comes from an online site called gobankingrates.com, and they say, that according to the 2020 U.S. Census data, only 5% of American homes earn $250,000 a year or more. At that time, the median salary in our country was $67,521. And they, they, they talked to uh, investment advisors, wealth managers who worked with high-income clients and determined this list of seven things high earners don't spend their money on. Now, I'm going to share the list with you, but before I do it, I want you to tell you, this is not a commentary from me. 
Because you know what? How you spend your money is between you and God. I'm just making sure I'm giving you the direction that God wants me to give you. But how you spend your money, how you use it, that's between you and God. And I'm not, I, I don't, it would be wrong for you to assume that I'm criticizing any of these things. I'm just reading to you an article. Here are the seven things. They come from professional financial advisors working with high-income clients. Number one, designer clothes. Number two, luxury cars. Number three, huge homes. Number four, this surprised me, travel sports for kids. Number five, first class airline tickets. Number six, expensive jewelry. Number seven, big vacations with a caveat of sometimes next to the big vacations. I got a recommendation, a book recommendation for you if you're interested. Because I think a lot of problems, some of the problems that we have sometimes, we have this wrong idea about people who are wealthy. Because let me tell you something about being wealthy. You can, you can look wealthy or you can be wealthy. Which are you going to choose? You can look rich or you can be rich. Which one are you going to choose? My book recommendation is a book I read a long time ago called The Millionaire Next Door. And the tagline to the book is The Surprising Secrets of America's Wealthy. Because what the book does is it pretty much verifies what we just, re- what we just heard from that article because it shows that one of the surprising traits many millionaires have in common is that uh, they're, they're not necessarily high-income people because high income doesn't always equate to wealth if you spend the money foolishly and consumptively. You can look rich or you can be rich. So let me just ask you a really straightforward question, just really honest, straightforward. Do you, right now, as you're listening to me, here and person and online, do you have any kind of specific plan that you follow for how you manage the money, God, who is the owner of all things, entrusts to you? And if you don't, if your honest answer is you don't, then you need a plan. You need to go home and you need to figure out what your financial situation is because Proverbs 13, 16 says, every prudent man acts out of knowledge, but a fool exposes his folly. How much money is coming in, how much money is going out, and where is it going, and you don't leave out anything, not anything, not one dime. How much is coming in, how much is going out, how much are you saving, and how much are you able to give away? And from there, you need to create a plan based on the things that are most important to you in your life. And if you can't do it on your own, that's okay, because you know what? We can help you. And when I say we can help you, here's what I mean. We've got a Financial Peace University class starting in January. In January. Can you believe how close we are to the end of the year right now? This year is just flying by. And so we're just weeks away from a new year and we have a new Financial Peace University class starting in January along with a legacy journey class. And you can sign up for Financial Peace University and here's the thing before, just swallow your pride, get over your fear, whatever it is that keeps you from doing it every year and sign up because we, will, we are offering Financial Peace University at the lowest cost we have ever offered it in the history of doing it, of providing this opportunity. You can sign up for Financial Peace University for $10. We got 20 spots for $10. You can spend $10 that can change your financial life and change the financial lives of your children and their children and their children potentially. $10. Financial Peace University. We're going to have a table in the commons 
a financial freedom ministry table in the commons where you can learn more about that. You can sign up. You can learn more about the legacy journey. The easiest thing you can do is leave this service today and just put all of that out of your mind and not think about it again, but don't make that mistake because no one will ever be a good manager or steward of whatever amount God has entrusted to them until they manage it with a plan. Every prudent man acts out of knowledge, but a fool exposes his folly. Here's number three. I got to do this quickly. The third thing, so number one, <laughs> number one, everything belongs to God. Number two, you got to manage whatever you have with a plan. Number three, be generous. This is... This is a part of the management plan. I believe in the power of generosity, friends. Proverbs eleven twenty five says, a generous man who prospers, he who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. I believe in the power of generosity. Now, I'm not gonna talk about this a lot because that's gonna be week four. Uh, that'll be the final thing we talk about in this series. But I, I will tell you how generosity uh, happens in my life. Just as an example, I'm not saying you gotta do what I do, but just as an example, um, I will tell you generosity in my life is based on two things. And first of all, and I apologize for repeating myself, but it's based on having a plan to be generous, having a plan to be generous. Remember, I have three things that I pay attention to, a generosity commitment, a lifestyle commitment, and a savings commitment. You've got to have a plan to be generous. Look at these words on the screen from Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. He says, remember this, <clears throat> whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Now note this next part. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. What he has decided in his heart to give, that reflects a plan. I can't emphasize that enough. So number one, my commitment to generosity is based on a plan to be generous. Number two, my commitment to generosity is based on, as a foundation, is based on the tithe. And in the Bible, the word tithe literally means a tenth part. The tithe is primarily taught in the Old Testament as a part of the Old Testament law, but I want you to listen to me really close. I do, not, I do not start my generosity plan with a tithe because I believe I'm somehow obligated to follow the law of the Old Testament because I'm not. We are New Testament Christians. We live under the grace of God. Somebody say amen to that. Our life with God is not about what we do. Our life with God is about who we have our faith and trust in, and that's Jesus. That's the grace that we live under. So I don't, I don't do this because I think I'm bound by the Old Testament law. Let me tell you why I do it. I do, I, I embrace it because I believe the tithe is an eternal principle. It's easy to understand and it's easy to reproduce. I do it because I believe starting with the tithe demonstrates in a tangible way that God has first place in every part of my life, including my finances. So if we were to give a 10th a tenth of what we give, have back to God, it would be the first tenth, the first 10%. Proverbs chapter three and verse nine says, honor the Lord with your wealth with the first fruits of all your crops. The first fruits. We don't give God what's left over. We give God, if he has first place in our life, he is the first person to receive what we have. I, I believe in the tithe because I think it's an antidote to greed. I believe in the tithe because it keeps giving proportional among God's people. You know, we have a, a large church. It's multi-generational. We have lots of different incomes uh, represented here. But when everybody has a commitment to tithe, we're not talking about equal gifts, but we're all talking about equal sacrifice. And so it keeps giving proportional among God's people. Uh, I believe the tithe proves and strengthens our faith. I could go on and on, but I'll stop right there. We're going to talk more about this in a couple of weeks. If we're going to manage money, whatever amount it is that God has entrusted to us, in a way that honors him, then I'm telling you, as I read my Bible and I understand my Bible, generosity needs to be a part of our plan. It needs to be a part of our plan. And so I love to give you opportunities to be generous all throughout the year. You have an opportunity every time we come every weekend to give, but I love to give you opportunities to be generous. You notice the tip jars are out this morning? 
Uh, what was it, two or three weeks ago, Greg Pruitt, who's the president of Bible, uh, Pioneer Bible Translators, was here, and I told you, uh, I asked him Saturday night at dinner, uh, how much it costs to translate one verse of scripture into the language of another people group, and he said $35, so let's translate some scriptures this weekend. You wanna do that? I went and I got three $50 bills, because I don't want anybody to think I'm just putting 150 in and then fishing it out and putting it in again and fishing it out and putting it in again. <laughs> I put in one last night, I got a $50 bill, I put it right in there, and I'm gonna challenge you, you know how we do this at the end of the service, if you're willing to do that. No, it's not, uh, no obligation, no obligation. If you're willing to do that though, and make a commitment to help translate, for example, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. If you're willing to translate that into the language of somebody who doesn't even know who Jesus is, then you can come and put whatever you have whatever you desire in one of the tip jars. I read as I was writing the message this week and our group can come and we'll get ready to close that the U.S. Powerball hit a record of $2.04 billion, highest it's ever been in history. And I read that if someone were to win that, and I understand somebody has bought the winning ticket. I haven't heard, I don't always pay attention to these kinds of things. I, don't, I haven't heard if they've claimed it or not. But if someone were to win that and take the lump sum payout, they would have $997 million $997.6 million would what they would have. Now, I imagine most of us here today who've paid any attention to that, including myself, because I'm in this list, have spent at least a little bit of time thinking, what would I do with that money if I got it? You know what the chances of winning the Powerball are? One in 292 million. You know what the chance of you and I waking up tomorrow with the responsibility of being good stewards of every single cent that God has entrusted to us, it's one in one, 100%. That's our responsibility every single day. And so the question is, how am I gonna manage whatever amount God has entrusted to me, whether it's a little or a lot? 